0: PTJ podcasts are made possible by the American Physical Therapy Association. Physical therapists diagnose and treat people of all ages with all types of health conditions to help keep them moving and functioning in daily life. Welcome to the Craigcast from Physical Therapy. Each month, PTJ Editor-in-Chief, Dr. Rebecca Craig, offers her take on the articles appearing in this month's PTJ. Here is Rebecca Craig. Hello, this is Becky Craig, and I am delighted to welcome you to the October issue of Physical Therapy. I think you'll find this issue another really exciting one to read. Reflecting on what October is, for us in the United States, this is a time for Halloween. I usually have a big party, and we have competition for the best pumpkins. The colors here in this country are changing, and the trees look gorgeous. So enjoy the fall or, on the other side, the spring. It's a wonderful new season. The first article is entitled Physical Therapist Practice in the Intensive Care Unit, Results of a National Survey. The authors are led by Dan Malone, who is a PT, and his physician and PT colleagues who come from the University of Colorado in Denver. This is a really nice follow-up to a survey that Dr. Malone conducted back in 2009 that really begins to look in more detail at how physical therapists practice in the intensive care unit with specific questions related to the number of physical therapists who are actually practicing, their confidence in being able to practice. So there's a really nice detailed description of what the current practice looks like among those who responded to a self-report questionnaire. The background really outlines the variability in practice around the world in this particular area of acute care or intensive care unit. I encourage anyone who's interested in how physical therapists practice in the hospital, particularly in the intensive care unit, to read the introduction because it does such a nice job giving us an international flavor from people who are remarkably comfortable in treating persons, weaning them off mechanical ventilators to other physical therapists who never wean patients off of mechanical ventilators. There were 554 surveys returned of the 2,320 that were sent. So the response rate was 29%. And there were three states that are not included, and those were Delaware, Rhode Island, and Hawaii. But I do believe that there's enough information for us to have a much broader understanding than was available in the 2009 survey. I'm going to jump to the bottom line, as I always do. Only 32% of the physical therapists who responded to the survey had received formal ICU training. Academic hospitals had lower ICU staffing than community hospitals. 39% of the respondents reported facility-based guidelines for ICU consultation. Barriers to more physical therapist services in ICU included insufficient staffing lower prioritization of the ICU, lack of specific consultation criteria. So this paper is really a call to us if we're interested in having physical therapists practice in more numbers, to call for the following. Increase the number of staff who work in the ICU who are physical therapists. Increasing awareness of the evidence. What's really exciting about this area is there is a lot of very nice and solid evidence. The physical therapists working in an ICU help improve patient outcomes and decrease rehospitalizations and are effective with cost savings. So we can go with evidence to argue for the increasing staff. And the final piece is really the need for education either in the entry-level programs or in specialization or when the therapists come on to the hospital floor in how to manage patients with ICU problems. So thank you. This was a really good paper, and I hope it takes us further. The next paper is entitled Movement, Function, Pain, and Postoperative Edema in axillary Web Syndrome. This is led by Linda Kohler and her colleagues who are comprised of physical therapists and physicians. They come from the University of Minnesota in Minneapolis, Minnesota and Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. As I said every time, I always learn so much when I read the issue and this is another one for me. I certainly know that axillary web syndrome and for those of you who haven't heard of it, it commonly occurs after particular types of surgery or biopsies for a mastectomy, and it presents as a tight cord that is right underneath superficial tissue, and it can be in the axilla, arm, or chest wall. And what it does is it appears to limit upper extremity movement and can be painful. There's not a lot of description about the prevalence of AWS, axillary web syndrome, nor is it clear what the predictors are for individuals who get axillary web syndrome. So the authors were really very interested in looking at persons at 2 weeks, 4 weeks, and 12 weeks post-sentinel node biopsy or axillary lymph node dissection. This was a small sample. It was 36 persons. Again, I'm just going to give you some sort of highlights and encourage you to read the article. What surprised me is that 47% of the sample developed axillary web syndrome. And in some cases, it resolved within the 12 weeks that they were followed. But there were 10 women, or almost 30% of the sample, that still had axillary web syndrome at 12 weeks. So it's not clear whether those individuals will see resolution or whether they continue to have axillary web syndrome into the future. There weren't differences in function pain or edema between those who had axillary web syndrome and those that didn't. So I think that was pretty interesting. But again, that's immediately within the first 12 weeks. It's not clear what happens to the people who are further out that still possess the axillary web syndrome. So I would say that the early consequences include movement restriction, but the long-term effects aren't known. This is really an area rich for research. And before I leave this article, I need to tell you that if you're interested in looking at lymphedema, this article does an excellent job talking about three different methods that were used to assess some aspect of the lymphedema, and it's so well described, so I encourage you to read the methods. Thank you authors for submitting this exciting article. The next article is entitled, Experiences of First-Time Mothers with Persistent Pelvic Girdle Pain After Childbirth. This is a descriptive qualitative study by Francesca Wojtok and her colleagues, who come from the School of Nursing and Midwifery at Trinity College Dublin in Dublin, Ireland, and from the Institute of Healthcare Sciences at the University of Gothenburg in Gothenburg, Sweden. This is a really instructive paper, at least it was for me, and very, very thoughtfully written, and I think can provide good insight for persons in the musculoskeletal world who are seeing persons with pelvic girdle pain either during or following pregnancy or physical therapists who are working in women's health. And I'm sure there are other physical therapists who may see persons who are pregnant who have pelvic girdle pain. So the authors described the pain as musculoskeletal in origin and between the posterior iliac crest and the inferior gluteal fold in the area of the sacroiliac joint. And they also report that pain may be experienced at the pubic symphysis. So you kind of get the location about which they're speaking. The authors interviewed women who were pregnant or had been pregnant with their first child. So this is early on. And when one looks at the literature, the range of pelvic girdle pain in pregnancy ranges from 23 to 65% of pregnant women The other point is that this pain does, in some, as many as 9%, continue two years post-birthing, so postpartum. So I think this is, again, something that we need to be aware of. The authors did qualitative interviews with 54 women who were contacted and 23 who were included in the study. And themes emerged, and again, I'm just going to read the major themes because I think it will give you a flavor of the content of this manuscript. Theme one was putting up with pain, coping with everyday life. Theme two, I don't feel back to normal. Theme three, I thought it would be gone by now, previous expectations. And theme four, what's next, a changing pain. So again, I really encourage you all to read this. It is so well written and really provides insight into what these women are going through. I would say that what the authors conclude is the findings should assist healthcare professionals involved in the care of women during pregnancy and in the postpartum period to develop a better understanding of the complexity and multifaceted nature of how persistent pelvic girdle pain affects these women's lives. The next paper is entitled Health, Personal, and Environmental Predictors of Wheelchair Use Confidence in Adult Wheelchair Users. The authors are led by Brody Saka Kibara. Brody and colleagues are occupational therapists, physical therapists, and engineers. They come from the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada, Vancouver Coastal Research Institute in Vancouver, and the Department of Rehabilitation at Laval University in Quebec City, Canada. This is uh, instructive. Uh, The authors were very interested in describing confidence that adults have, and they looked at adults who were older than 50 years old and who had used wheelchairs at least six months to see who was using their wheelchair in the community. Again, think about the aging population. In addition to the number of persons in our world who have chronic disability that requires the use of wheelchairs. What is the training that's been provided for persons with wheelchairs? Is there confidence in the ability to use wheelchairs? Certainly there's literature that supports the relationship between confidence in use of the wheelchair and participation in society. In addition, There's literature to suggest that if a person lacks confidence in wheelchair use, that intervention can modify confidence. So the authors were really interested in knowing if there was a problem. So they were interested in knowing if it was possible to predict what characteristics of individuals who use wheelchairs predicted their community participation. The sample, as I said, had 124 individuals who were about 60 years of age and had a mean of 22 years of experience with their wheelchairs. So I think that's really an interesting finding. So they looked at a number of different models, and again, this group always writes really thoughtful research and and describes their methods very well. The final predictive model that they used included number of comorbidities as the health condition, five personal factors, age, sex, daily hours of wheelchair occupancy, training to use a wheelchair, and assistance with wheelchair use, and one environmental factor, the need for seating intervention. So they really used the framework of the ICF to explore the factors that were predictive. When they looked at all those variables together, it accounted for 44% of the wheelchair-use confidence variance. That's pretty powerful. And as one would expect, those who were less confident were less likely to participate in the community. They conclude that in particular, older women who use wheelchairs may be prone to lower levels of perceived confidence. And the same is true for individuals who require assistance with their wheelchair or who use their wheelchair for a few hours throughout the day or who receive no formal training. So again, I think this provides an incredible opportunity for us to talk about interventions that may be useful. The next paper is entitled Participation in Physical Play and Leisure in Children with Motor Impairments, Mixed Methods Study to Generate Evidence for Developing an Intervention. This team is a group of professionals coming from the Institute of Health and Society, Newcastle University in Newcastle Upon a United Kingdom, Health Services Research Unit in University of Aberdeen in the United Kingdom, Cannes Child Center for a Childhood Disability at McMaster University in Ontario, Canada, Children's Services at the National Health Services Lothian in West Lothian, United Kingdom, and the School of Health Sciences at City University Hospital in London. So again, what you're seeing is an international collaboration on a very important question. The first author is Nina Kolaminan, and she and her colleagues really did an excellent job. And from my understanding, they were basically scientists who were collecting data from children, parents, physical therapists, So they were sort of the investigators observing all of those interactions. There's no evidence related to the effectiveness of physical therapy or occupational therapy interventions in increasing physical play and leisure in children with motor impairments, of course. So there's just a lack of evidence. And so the authors were really very interested in gathering potential information about potentially modifiable variables that could increase the level of play in the children with physical disabilities. The framework that they use is the International Classification of Functioning Disability and Health for Children and Youth, so I encourage you, if you're not aware of that, to look at it. This is a long, extremely well-done and well-described study. So I'm just going to be super brief. The primary outcome was the children self-reported physical play and leisure in the preceding four months. So that's the primary outcome. Basically, information was gathered from, as I said before, the children, physical therapists who did an examination and identified problems in body function and structure that could limit activity, the parents, so there were multiple sources of information. There were five steps, and I, I wish I had the time to go through the five steps that they used in the study because it's just such a well-done study. Basically, once the physical therapist did their examination, one aspect of the steps that were used was then that four senior physical therapists reviewed the list of problems that the physical therapist had identified with the children and actually, excluded those that they did not think were modifiable. And that was using four experts and getting consensus from at least three of them. I think there are so many things to talk about, but I'm going to say that the bottom line for me in looking at the results of this 195 children report was that the role of the family's attitudes was so important. And so, while they collected information from a lot of different individuals, what was really important was it appeared that children's participation is related to the activity orientation of the family, and that the family's rules, such as if it's Saturday, then we go and play in the park, were really important in forming or informing the child's expectations. So I think that. First of all, as I said previously, this is extremely well written, but I also think it helps the physical therapist gather information probably from a source that they hadn't thought of before. And that's the family's attitudes. So enjoy reading this paper. The next paper is entitled Clinical Decision-Making Tool for Safe and Effective Prescription of Exercise in Acute Exacerbations of Chronic Obstructive Pulmonary Disease results from an interdisciplinary Delphi survey and focus groups. The team is Pat Camp and colleagues who are comprised of physical therapists, nurses, and physicians coming from the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada, St. Paul's Hospital in Vancouver, Providence Healthcare in Vancouver, the University of Toronto in Toronto, Canada, Burnaby Hospital in Burnaby, British Columbia, Canada, University of Saskatchewan in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, Canada, and finally, Lung Health Institute of Canada in Saskatchewan, Canada. So this is quite a team that spreads across Canada. The notion, again, is sort of part of our theme, goes back to the first paper by Malone talking about ICU and the fact that there's evidence to support effectiveness There isn't a really nice, according to these authors, good guidelines that help physical therapists or patients work through an acute exacerbation of chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. And so what they want to do is they would like to provide information that would guide safe and effective mobilization and exercise for the patients. So again, the authors are really looking to come to consensus ultimately to develop guidelines to help standardize care for this patient population. They did a nice job beginning. I hope you find the results interesting, and the tool is on its way. The next paper is entitled Assessing Balance Function in Patients with Total Knee Arthroplasty. The first author is Andy Chen, who comes from the Physiotherapy Department at Hong Kong Buddhist Hospital in Kowloon, Hong Kong. And the second author is Marco Pang, who comes from the Department of Rehab Sciences at Hong Kong Polytechnic University in Hong Kong. As many of you who have worked with patients with total knee arthroplasty know, falls are not unusual with people who have had total knee arthroplasty. And again, the concept of balance is important, but not often stressed. And I think when we think of Total neorethroplasty, the first thing certainly that the students think about is the involved lower extremity. So the authors are asking us to step back and think about how important balance function is in persons post-total neorethroplasty. And the purpose of their study was to identify a tool that would be useful in assessing balance in this patient population. They looked at three different versions of the BEST test, which we've talked about previously, and compared it with the Berg Balance Scale, the Functional Gait Analysis, and the activity-specific balance confidence scale. The bottom line for this study is that all three of the versions of the BEST test had good reliability and validity to evaluate balance, and even the brief BEST test, which was the least time-consuming was found to be valid and reliable. So for clinicians who are having limited time to do an examination, the use of the brief best test may be indicated. Thank you, authors, for this paper. The next paper is a protocol paper. Many of you don't know that I had reservations about the value of publishing protocols of research that was about to be done, but the editorial board will pretty adamant that this information could provide very useful background for other investigators to know who was about to do a clinical trial, could help clinicians understand what kind of research was sort of coming down the pike so they could stay tuned and look for the outcomes. So we've been publishing protocols, and I have to admit, they've been really interesting to me. And certainly, this protocol entitled Effects of Adding an Internet-Based Pain Coping Skills Training Protocol to standardize education and exercise program with people with persistent hip pain. This is a randomized controlled trial protocol led by Kim Bennell and her colleagues, who appear to be physical therapists and scientists from the University of Melbourne in Victoria, Australia, University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, Duke University in Durham. North Carolina. Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. University of Otaga in Dunedin, New Zealand. Physioworks Health Group in Camberbell, Australia. University of Queensland in Queensland, Australia. And Queens University in Kingston, Ontario. Now we don't talk about results. When we talk about protocols, we talk about what the authors are interested in looking into. And this is part of a theme that has emerged certainly during my term as editor-in-chief, and that is how important other aspects are of the intervention besides the physical exercise. And so there's growing evidence that shows that the training in pain coping skills is really an important inclusion for a physical therapist intervention. So the authors here are very interested in looking at persons who are over the age of 50 years who have persistent hip pain, mostly from osteoarthritis. And again, there's mixed literature about the effect of exercise on alleviating some of this pain, but there is reasonable evidence to suggest that education is important so that exercise alone doesn't seem to be as good as education. And what these authors were interested in doing is looking at yet an additional level, and that is to introduce an Internet training basically on how to cope with pain as part of the early aspect of the 24-week intervention. If you don't know about coping skills training, this is a great protocol, and references are listed in the bibliography. That will be very helpful and we can all look forward to the outcomes of this randomized control trial. The final two papers are perspectives. The first is entitled Motor and visio Attention and Motor Planning After Stroke, Considerations for Rehabilitation of Standing Balance and Gait. The first author is Sue Peters. She and her colleagues are from the departments of Physical Therapy and Psychology at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This is extremely exciting paper to read. The authors do a wonderful job giving you operational definitions for motor planning, for motor attention, and for visio attention, ignoring the aspect of neglect that will certainly be present in some person's post-stroke. Look at figure two, it's a great model of their sort of framework that they're hypothesizing is involved in basically helping the person to get up and move effectively. So the whole aspect of integrating sensation of the body with motor planning and understanding the environment is thoughtfully described in this perspective. The effect of stroke and damage to particular regions is discussed. And the excitement for doing research to determine which kinds of interventions are most effective in assisting to improve motor planning is discussed. So I just adored this paper, and I thank the authors very much for choosing us. The other perspective is entitled Promoting Health and Wellness, Implications for a Physical Therapist Practice, written by Janet Besner, who is in the Department of Physical Therapy at Texas State University in San Marcos, Texas. This is a great paper we know that healthcare is trying to shift from being reactive and treating people who have diseases to one that promotes the prevention of non-communicable diseases such as heart disease, stroke, cancer, diabetes, lung disease. Many of these individuals who have the disease could have been prevented if told, informed, and encouraged to have a healthier lifestyle that included good nutrition, exercise, etc. So what Dr. Besner does in this perspective is really talk about the role that the physical therapist can play in promoting health and wellness in the society. So again, I think it's a very thoughtful paper and easy and straightforward to read. The final entry in this month's physical therapy journal is Dr. Lynn Snyder-Mackler's 46th Mary McMillan Lecture entitled Not Eureka. There's a podcast available. I don't want to spoil it. I encourage you to either read the written word or listen to the podcast. Lynn has a powerful message about need for scholarship among faculty members, the need for faculty members to serve as role models for future scientists, many other messages, but I encourage you to listen to that wonderful presentation. And that concludes the October issue. Thank you so very much for listening, and I look forward to talking to you in November. Thanks for listening. If you have a question for Dr. Craig, email ptj at and be sure to include Craigcast in the subject line. This has been a production of APTA.